Dr. Sneha Ann Philip was a fiercely independent and highly intelligent young woman from Kerala, India. Her unquestioning care for her patients, curiosity in multiple arts, and desire to see the world were all cut short by a troubling disappearance in September of 2001 in the hours leading up to the 9-11 terrorist attacks, leaving all who knew her in the Manhattan community and the entirety of New York City at large grasping for answers in a sea of mysteries that drowned us all in doubt. As I hope to provide more substantial reasoning built upon observable evidence and situational analysis, this is an examination of the disappearance of Sneha and Philip in the lead-up to one of the darkest days in American history, and the decades-long fight for her family to set the record straight on Sneha's fate and ultimately her heroic legacy. This is Cold Case Detective. Sneha Ann Philip was born on October 7th, 1969, to parents Dr. Kochile and Ansu Philip in Kerala, India, an Indian state right on the Malabar coast. Sneha joined a family of three, her birth preceded by her brother, Ashwins. Not long after her introduction to the Philip household, her parents welcomed a second son, this one named Kevin. The lone daughter got along well with both of her brothers, even at a young age, fostering a fun-filled relationship that often included long days filled with laughter and excitement. After a few years, however, the Philip family decided that their time in Kerala, India, was coming to an end. Seeing a move to the United States as the perfect opportunity for both Dr. Kachail's career and raising a bright and burgeoning family, the Phillips moved to upstate New York. Once they arrived, Sneha and the others settled in Hopwell Junction, a hamlet and census-designated place in Dutchess County, close in proximity to Poughkeepsie, New York. Finally in America, Sneha adapted well to the change in the varying lifestyles and cultures that surrounded her. She especially grew fond of the fine arts and had a special gravitation towards music, writing, and painting. Sneha's creative pursuits were only one part to her overall interests, though. Many of her classmates and school teachers throughout her later childhood remarked of her uncanny intelligence for her age in combination with a deep-rooted empathy she held for others. These compassionate inclinations followed her throughout high school, where Sneha decided she wanted to pursue medicine and eventually acquire a doctorate degree. Of course, this wasn't without hesitation. Sneha still held a crucial bond with the arts and considered going against all expectations and pursuing painting or a similar focus in college rather than a formal medical degree. In the end, however, the surefire potential of a career in medicine won the argument, and after graduating from Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore, Maryland, Sneher enrolled at the Chicago School of Medicine in 1995, finding inspiration from her father's own career as a physician. While Sneher was at Rosalind Franklin University of Medicine and Science, shortened to RFS, she met a fellow doctor-in-waiting named Ron Lieberman, a Los Angeles transplant, studying in the class one year behind Sneher. The two quickly fell in love, but not only on an intimate level. After just a few conversations, Sneha learned that Ron was a fellow artist 
and spent much of his free time as a musician and all-around music lover. With her own interests in painting, Sneher realized the two could share both their professional and personal lives together, and the pair started dating. During Ron's penultimate year at RFS, Sneher went as far as to take a year off from school, instead traveling around the Italian countryside, all so that she and Ron could graduate together and take the post-grad step in sync. Once the couple finished at RFS, they moved to the East Village neighborhood of Lower Manhattan in New York City, where they each received internships close by. Ron found an opportunity in the Jacobi Medical Center in the Bronx, while Sneher worked at the Cabrini Medical Center. By May of 2000, Ron and Sneher were happily married after performing a private ceremony in Dutchess County, where the Phillips siblings grew up. The occasion proved to be beautifully unique as well, as both families incorporated aspects to their Jewish and Indian Christian heritages. In fact, at the wedding, Ron presented Sneher with a minu, the traditional wedding pendant gifted to brides in the Malayali Christian traditions. This one was shaped to form a golden teardrop accented with a set diamond. It would be the same piece of jewelry desperately sought by her parents in September of 2001. After the twin towers of the World Trade Center were terrorized, and their only daughter, once filled with promise, disappeared without a trace. Let us now turn to the timeline of events leading to Sneha's disappearance. In the summer of 2000, newlyweds Sneha and Ron upsized their living quarters to an apartment in Battery Park City, only a few blocks away from the WTC. Fast forward nearly a year later, in spring of 2001, and Sneha's director of residence informs her that her contract will not be renewed. Only a few months pass by, and her next employer, Staten Island's St. Vincent Medical Center, suspended Sneha that summer of 2001 for failing to meet with her substance abuse counselor after dealing with an alcohol addiction. Her mother visited Sneha Friday before the attacks, where they hung out, ate food, and watched a movie. She spent the night, and before leaving the next day, Sneha made a comment that she wanted a closer relationship with her mother like they had before. Sneha had a court date on the morning of September 10th, where she pleaded not guilty to the charge of filing a false complaint. Back at home, in their Rector Place apartment at 11am, Ron leaves for work, leaving Sneha by herself. Throughout the rest of the morning, Sneha cleans up in preparation for her cousin, Anu's arrival on Wednesday, September 12th. In the early afternoon, Sneha repots white-purple orchids from Hawaii and dries them in the bathtub. Between 2 and 4 p.m., she IMs her mother, talking about Ron's guitar playing at a recent function at Jacobi Medical Center, and her desire to see Windows on the World restaurant on the rooftop of North WTC Tower, where a friend would be married in spring of 2002. Then, between 4 and 5 p.m., Sneha changes into sandals, a brown short-sleeve dress, and ties her hair back into a ponytail. She departs just after the clock chimes five times. Between 5 and 6 p.m., Sneha drops off dry cleaning and heads to Century 21 to shop at a discount shopping center. It's located right past the Twin Towers, only a few blocks from the apartment. She shops the retail store for lingerie, a new dress, pantyhose, and fresh linens for the apartment. Just after 6 p.m., there's a transaction at that same Century 21 on Ron's American Express credit card, which Sneha had permission to use. Between 6 to 7 p.m., she walks to the shop next door 
and buys three pairs of shoes from the shoe annex. At some point during the two-hour shopping trip, CCTV cameras capture Sneher looking at the clothing in the department store. This would be the last confirmed sighting of Sneher and Philip. Later that night, Ron arrives home from work just before midnight. He notices Sneher is absent, but also that there are no voice messages from her either, something he asked her to do when she was out late. Just before the calendar flips to September 11th, 2001, Ron made sure the two house cats, Figa and Carly, were all right and went to bed. Early the next morning, at around 4am, Ron's cell phone is pinged with a missed call from a phone line inside the apartment. Sneher is the only other one with access to the home, but Ron doesn't remember receiving a call and says he barely remembers even checking his voicemail around that time. Two and a half hours later, Ron wakes up to his 6.30 alarm, again by his lonesome. While he is initially annoyed, he realizes Sneher probably just spent the night at her cousin's or brother's place in West Village, which was a normal occurrence. He quickly gets ready and departs for Jacobi Medical Center via the Uptown 5 train. At 8 a.m., Ron attends the meeting, ignorant to the oncoming catastrophe, alongside all of the other blissfully ignorant New Yorkers throughout the city. 46 minutes later, at 40 seconds past 8.46 a.m., American Airlines Flight 11, a Boeing 767 aircraft filled with 92 people on board, crashes between floors 93 to 99 on the north face of the North Tower, also called 1WC, at the World Trade Center in Lower Manhattan, New York City. A few minutes pass by, and Ron leaves a meeting at Jacoby Medical Center. He exits the room and finds his co-workers crowding a television set. When he approaches, he sees a news program detailing a plane crash into the World Trade Center, which is only a few blocks from his apartment. His mind immediately races to thoughts of Sneha. At first, everyone believes the plane crash to be an accident, but those sentiments don't last long when at 9.03 a.m., United Airlines Flight 77, a Boeing 767 aircraft filled with 65 people on board, crashes between floors 77 and 85 on the south face of the South Tower, also called 2WTC. Around the same time, Ron frantically calls home to his apartment in Battery Park in an attempt to reach Sneha, but nobody picks up. He leaves a phone number on the voice message in case Sneha returns home and needs to contact him. After that failed attempt, Ron then contacts Sneha's mother and brother, who haven't heard from his wife either. Meanwhile, the horrendous events of September 11th continue across the United States. At 9.37 a.m., American Airlines Flight 77 crashes into the west side of the Pentagon in Washington, D.C. At 9.57 a.m., United Airlines Flight 93 is seized by its passengers from the hijackers, who are theoretically heading to the Capitol building, also in Washington, D.C. Then, within a 30-minute chunk of time, the South Tower of the World Trade Center collapses at 9.59, Flight 93 crashes in Somerset County, Pennsylvania at 10.03, and the North Tower of the World Trade Center collapses at 10.28. As the chaos swirling throughout Manhattan and elsewhere ravages the United States as a whole, Ron remains by his lonesome, thinking up all the scenarios in which Sneha could have wound up in. His theories range from kidnapping to murder to being a victim of the World Trade Center attacks herself. After hours of anxious waiting, Ron decides to leave work 
and look for his wife around 3 p.m. Due to the heavy traffic in the metro area of New York City throughout the day on 9-11, Ron is forced to hitch a ride with an ambulance heading toward Ground Zero. The trek takes upwards of six hours, as the squads had to navigate in the opposite flow of traffic, and no sign of Sneha is recovered. At 9pm, Ron arrives at Tribeca, only to find the NYPD have now cordoned off the World Trade Center crash site. He is able to use his medical credentials to pass through, and runs to his apartments. Unfortunately, due to the loss of power in the area, the front doors are locked, and Ron must take shelter at his friend's flat in West Village. The following morning, on September 12th, Ron wakes up and heads back to Battery Park, where he is finally able to access the apartment building. He heads upstairs, walks into his unit, and finds the flat covered with soot from the tower's collapse, as a bedroom window has been left open. In the moment, Ron realizes he can use the soot to his advantage and looks for human footprints along the floor. Sadly, all he finds are scattered paw prints from the couple's two kittens, meaning Sneha couldn't have come back after the World Trade Center fell down. After another round of checkups with Sneha's friends and family, Ron decides to report her missing with the NYPD, one of over 9,000 missing reports to be filed in the immediate aftermath of 9-11. In the following days, Ron took it upon himself to look for his wife. He called American Express when he noticed his credit card was missing, and they told him the last purchase came at the Century 21 department store on September 10th. Ron then ventured to that very store, where he put up missing person flyers for Sneha in and around the aisles. Later in the week, Ron receives a call from a former employee at the Century 21 store, who informs him she remembered seeing Sneha in the evening of the 10th. The employee also tells Ron she remembers Sneha had been with another person at the store that day, believing the other person to be a fellow Indian woman. Ron takes this information back to Century 21, who allow him to go through three weeks' worth of security footage. This is when he finds the CCTV shot of his wife browsing for clothes. However, she is by herself in all of the clips in which she appears. After waiting for the NYPD to begin their investigation and growing frustrated with their nonplussed attitude at her fate in regards to 9-11, Ron hired a private investigator, Ken Gallant. Initially, the investigator believed there was a possibility. Sneha used the World Trade Center attacks as a cover to escape her struggles in life and start fresh somewhere unknown. However, this theory is short-lived, as both Gallant and Ron come to the agreement that Sneha most likely returned to the apartment the morning of September 11th, saw the attacks happen in real time, and immediately decided to go to Ground Zero, and aid the injured with her medical background. This is most likely where she died, despite her body never being recovered. Ron takes this to the police after enough evidence is collected, only to find the NYPD has a separate investigation into her disappearance, believing she wasn't in fact a victim of 9-11, but rather as a victim of foul play due to her erratic behavior and criminal history. In 2003, Lieberman protests the conclusion of his wife's investigation by the NYPD and argues she should remain an official victim of the 9-11 tragedy, as well as gaining access to the September 11th Victim Compensation Fund for his efforts in locating her and attempting to bring her home. The NYPD presents these findings to the courts, who hear Ron's claim, but ultimately agree there is not enough evidence to prove Sneha was a victim of the World Trade Center attacks, 
and her name is removed from the official list of deaths, along with two others, in January of 2004. Incredulous, Ron and the Philip family fight tooth and nail to appeal this ruling, arguing the police fabricated their findings via family testimony and circumstantial evidence. At the appeal hearing in the late winter of 2008, the defense argued while Sneha's disappearance was not guaranteed to be a direct result of the 9-11 terrorist attacks, it was highly probable when considering her route home that morning would have taken her right past ground zero at the time when the Twin Towers were first hit. Thus, being in the vicinity with her degree in medicine, the degree of speculation was greater and Sneha's rightful place as an official victim of the darkest day in modern American history was restored. Despite the ruling, the story surrounding Sneha and Phillips has not been one of potential heroism, but one of skepticism, blaming her early adulthood struggles on her status as a missing person, and claiming both her family and Ron Lieberman used her vanishing to their financial gain. My name is Koji. And I'm Michelle. And this is the Japanese America Podcast. So this is where we look at all things Japanese American. We will bring alive the history, culture, and people that make up this diverse community. In this month's episode, we'll examine Koji's unique family history. To help bring this story alive, we brought on actor and comedian Derek Mew. He was reported to be extremely pro-Japanese and anti-American in sentiment. Her husband was taken into custody by the military authorities, under a warrant authorized by the Secretary of War, who was his enemy of the United States. He was my grandfather on my dad's side. To hear more stories about Japanese America, you can listen to this podcast anywhere you normally download your podcast. It goes without saying that of all the 9,000 missing person reports to come through law enforcement agencies in the days and weeks after the 9-11 attacks, most of them came with the unfortunate clause that most, if not all, would see evidence and clues lost in the cracks. There was simply too much chaos and hysteria for proper investigations to be held, not to mention many of these reports either being duplicates or instances in which police or the families found the victim to be one of the casualties of the attacks themselves. If there's an optimistic angle to be had, it's that a lot of New York City features a hefty amount of security cameras and other CCTV systems in every nook and cranny around the metro. Of course, the caveat in this scenario is that many security cameras were either disabled or abandoned the morning of 9-11 and in the days that followed. Authorities at local, state, and federal levels did their best to seize as much footage in New York City as they could to solve the 9-11 plot, but little did they know these preservation efforts, while delayed in nature, ended up aiding the smaller investigations just as much. This is the exact situation that impacted the search for Sneha and Phillips, and provided the most important clue when assessing what could have happened to her either on the evening of September 10th or sometime on September 11th. When private investigator Ken Gallant looked into Sneha's disappearance, he was able to track down security footage from the main lobby at Rector Place Apartments in Battery Park, the couple's residence of about a year. The tapes showed that on the morning of Tuesday, September 11th, 2001, at the 8.43 a.m. timestamp, a woman enters the Rector Place lobby, walks towards the elevator, stands for only a couple of moments, and leaves. Unfortunately, we do not have access to these tapes. However, they were used in Ken Gallant's official case documents and presented to the court when Sneha's case was argued in front of a judge. 
The documents show that while the quality of the CCTV footage was severely contrasted by the angle of the sun's rays pouring through the lobby's window, one could make out the basic details of the woman in the shot. Ron testified that the figure in the frame shared the same mannerisms as his wife, sported a haircut and or ponytail similar to the one Sneher had around the time, and even wore clothes that resembled the dress worn by Sneher in the Century 21 security footage seen earlier. That's not the only thing suggesting the woman could be Sneher. The time of day also provides a major clue. Ron testified in court that on the occasion when Sneher wouldn't return home after a night out, which wasn't necessarily infrequent, her time of arrival the next day always fell between 7 and 9 a.m. With a timestamp of around 8.43 a.m., it fits perfectly within the pattern. An NYPD investigator, who also testified at the court hearings, even went as far to say he believed the woman to be Sneha Philip, despite never meeting the woman in person and only having access to her case file. The biggest counter-argument to the claim is that the woman in the security footage isn't carrying any bags or extra belongings, which Sneha certainly would have been holding after coming back to the apartment for the first time since her shopping spree. However, it's possible this is why the woman left the lobby after standing around for a moment or two at Rector Place. If it was Sneha, maybe she realized she had left her Century 21 bags on the train or at the place she spent the night and left as quickly as she arrived to fetch them. Others think that the timestamp on the CCTV system was off by a minute or two and leaving the lobby was in fact Sneha's reaction to hearing the first plane crash into the North Tower at the World Trade Center seeing as though it happened only a couple of blocks away. Usually, CCTV system clocks are programmed with the most accurate timestamp possible. However, there is no way to prove one way or another, and in the mass hysteria of 9-11 that quickly followed the capturing of this footage, it's fair to question its accuracy when it comes to timing. Regardless, the unseen security tapes are the biggest clue involved in Sneha's disappearance and feed into the countless theories concocted over the years since Ron's initial attempt to find his lost wife. Let's now turn to the most prominent theories surrounding Sneha's disappearance. Varying theories regarding the status of Sneha and Philip have burned through both the internet and various investigative agencies like wildfire in the years since America's darkest hour. Of those theories, most come to the conclusion that Sneha was somehow involved with the tragedy of 9-11 and ended up a victim. However, the biggest theory straying from that line of thinking came from the agency responsible for finding Sneha, the NYPD itself. After months of deliberation, Ron took it upon himself to find his missing wife by any means necessary, explaining the purchase of services from Ken Gallant. Part of this was due to the NYPD's incredibly busy workload following the events of 9-11, but also because they originally showed a lack of interest in Sneha's case. They were adamant she was probably a victim of the Twin Towers attack and bore no further investigation. At first, Ron was incredulous, believing his wife couldn't possibly have been at the towers and was sure something had happened to her the night before. Luckily, with the professional insight and detective work of Ken Gallant, both men came around and realized, looking at all the facts, Sneha was indeed a likely victim of 9-11. In a bizarre twist, though, as Ron and Gallant came around to this conclusion, law enforcement flip-flopped to Ron's original theory. 
As it turned out, the NYPD were investigating Sneha's disappearance, but from the perspective that she had brought her own vanishing upon herself. Of course, like any perplexed widower would do, Ron asked for a detailed explanation, having just accepted the tragic truth his wife died, along with 3,000 others on September 11th, 2001. Did he miss something? As it turned out, the NYPD had been building a pretty lengthy and detailed timeline of Sneha's past, focused not on her medical degree or affinity for painting, but rather her run-ins with the law and other personal issues Ron had long since stopped attributing to her disappearance. These detailed reports started with Sneha's final days as a resident of the Cabrini Medical Center, where she held an internship. Because she was classified as an intern, Sneha could not be outright fired. However, she was informed her contract wouldn't be renewed due to issues stemming from being late and alcohol abuse. That didn't stop Sneha from spending time with her old co-workers outside of the medical center. One night, not long after the bad news, Sneha went out to a bar with her peers to hang out and drink for a while. Instead of a peaceful night, however, Sneha wound up spending the next 12 hours in jail after engaging in a heated confrontation with one of her younger cohorts. According to police, Sneha filed a criminal complaint stating that she had been groped and touched inappropriately by one of the interns, who was also arrested and booked with a forcible touching charge. Yet, after a short-lived investigation, the NYPD and the district attorney's office in Manhattan decided to drop the charges on the accused intern and instead did a 180-degree turn and slapped Sneha with a misdemeanor charge for filing a false complaint. If this is difficult to hear, imagine how it must have felt in the moment for Sneha. Not only that, but she was also told by the prosecution team that all charges would be dropped if she simply recanted the original complaint. This did not sit well with her in the slightest. She wasn't about to surrender her story of abuse and not stick up for herself, so she denied the DA's offer and stuck to her original claim. As a result, Sneha was put into handcuffs and ordered to spend one night in jail, in which she obliged and spent the night meditating with a fellow inmate. The NYPD report didn't stop there, however. They went as far as to include Ron's part of the equation in Sneha's life, or in this case, the apparent lack thereof. According to official reports, Sneha was discovered to have been spending entire nights out with strangers and folks she would meet at the various gay LGBTQ friendly bars throughout Manhattan, such as Julie's, Henrietta Hudson's, and Meow Mix. The thing was, Ron wasn't ignorant to his wife's late-night escapades. While he didn't know the identities of all the acquaintances she made, he did know what she was doing in general and told her it was okay, as long as she called to let him know she was safe and in good hands. And in terms of the types of bars Sneha frequented, Ron told the NYPD that had no impact on their marriage. In fact, Ron gave a perfect explanation, saying Sneha had absolutely no interest in being hit on at normal bars, especially after the incident with the intern ended so badly for her. The falsified accusations by the NYPD didn't stop there, though. Their documents also included a supposed interview with Sneha's brother, who allegedly told police he had walked in on Sneha having sex with his girlfriend at the time. Yet, when Sneha's brother was questioned about this at the appeal hearing, he vehemently denied ever making these remarks, much less participating in an interrogation regarding that situation in general. Most damning of all, 
The police records contend that on the morning of September 10th, 2001, after a court proceeding for Sneha's criminal charge appeal, she and Ron got into a heated verbal confrontation on the courthouse grounds that ended with Ron storming away and Sneha incredulous by herself. The problem is, this never happened, according to Ron. He said they had an intentional discussion, but nothing escalated beyond civility, and that he left for work like he always did after the morning at court. All of these falsified events and circumstantial happenings led the police to argue Sneha disappeared as a result of her own doing, either getting into trouble due to her late-night activities or using 9-11 as a means to fake her own death and escape to start a new life, getting away from the transgressions that shadowed her. A faked death was already ruled out by Ken Gallant, however. He initially suspected the same thing, but did the proper investigative work. Gallant combed through Sneha's computer files and found none of the usual signs of someone researching starting a new life. She also kept almost all of her credit cards in the apartment, including her driver's license, passport, and glasses. The glasses were the biggest tell. She rarely ventured further than New York City outskirts without bringing them with her. So if Sneha didn't run away, could she have been killed during her night out like the NYPD originally thought? While it's not impossible, it's also not likely. This wasn't the first time Sneha spent the night out on the town and spent time with new friends at bars and their apartments around the city. She knew what she was doing, knew who she shouldn't hang around, and was obviously cognizant of the dangers women face at bars in a major metropolitan area. She wouldn't have done what she did if she didn't know how to protect herself and recognize the warning signs. There also wasn't any criminal pattern the night of September 10th to warrant a murder investigation. There were no unsolved homicides, no unidentified Indian women, no bar shootings or reported kidnappings. And of course, there were almost no crimes reported at all on September 11th, and only one unsolved homicide was reported by the end of the day. There's also no pattern of disappearances in the New York City area in the days leading up to 9-11 and following, outside the obvious Twin Towers victims. In fact, there is only one disputed missing persons report from the week of September 11th. That is the case of, that is the case of Fernando Molinar. Molinar was last seen or heard from on September 8th, 2001, when he talked to his mother on the phone about his new job near the World Trade Center at a local pizzeria. He hadn't started yet, but his real start date was never known. Despite seeming like an obvious candidate as a potential victim to 9-11, the petition to list him as an official death was denied by a Dutchess County judge in January of 2004. There isn't any true connection between Sneha and Molinar, except for the fact they were both immigrants to America. When it comes to the case of Sneha and Philip, we agree with her widower, Ron, private investigator Ken Gallant, the Philip family, and now the entirety of Dutchess County Courts, that Sneha perished as a result of the September 11th attacks at the World Trade Center. Furthermore, we believe that Sneha was dealing with a lot of pressing matters in life, feeling the pressure that medical school and starting a new life and career can bring. However, it was not the type of thing to push a person to throw it all away and start a new life. Sneha lost her job, not her physician's license or the ability to practice medicine. She already had another job, after all. Rather, it would have made sense for Sneha to spend the night in the places that made her most happy. She had dealt with a stressful court hearing that morning, and after spending the evening shopping, felt it best to stay out. Where exactly she went is anyone's guess. 
It's not exactly fair to go around asking people of their whereabouts on the night of September 10th, as the topic of 9-11 is an incredibly triggering event for some New Yorkers who are there living through it, and do not understand the fascination or desire to talk about it in the way the rest of the world often does. It's an understandable point, and while unfortunate, does demand our respect. What we can say, however, is that it makes all the sense in the world for Sneha to have seen the attacks unfolding at the Twin Towers on Tuesday morning and run to Ground Zero to help in any capacity she could. The first sign is the obvious. Sneha had spent the better part of six years devoting her life to becoming a doctor like her father. She was inspired by his compassion and care for regular folks across the world, and wanted to carry that legacy herself. When it came down to it, she loved people, and wanted to lend her talents to keeping more people healthy and alive. Thus, when a plane crashes into the Twin Towers, and an obvious crisis unfolds in front of you, Sneha would have been one of the first people to put her head down and do what she could. Sneha also had the World Trade Center on her mind the time she disappeared. Remember her instant messenger conversation with her mum on September 10th? She talked about trying the restaurant on the 106th and 107th floors of North Tower 1 WTC, branded as Windows on the World. The desire stemmed from an upcoming wedding Sneha would be attending in the spring of 2002, where one of her friends would be married at the Windows on the World venue. It's possible this was the first thought that ran through Sneha's mind when she saw the top of the North Tower on fire on the morning of 9-11. It could have been her good friend up there, in imminent danger. Whether or not Sneha was the woman in the apartment lobby's security footage is not for us to decide, as we have never seen the tapes, nor Sneha herself. However, we can deduce by the descriptions provided, and the acknowledgement of both her husband and an investigating detective, that the woman did appear to be Sneha, based on a few unique parameters. Ultimately, there were hints that Sneha was still alive up until a minute before the plane struck the Twin Towers on 9-11. After those next few tragic hours, there were zero hints and signs, and Sneha and Philip was gone just like nearly 3,000 others were by sundown. There still remains a chance that Sneha's remains could be identified. Investigators collected over 22,000 individual pieces of human remains from Ground Zero back in the cleanup efforts post 9-11, and many have yet to be tested against DNA submitted by victims' family members, who wish to claim proof of their loved one's fates. Overall, there are 1,347 victims of 9-11 whose remains have yet to be found, including Sneha's. It's possible a match shows up one day. However, the rate of identifying victims has increasingly slowed over the years, as a lot of the DNA either shows up as a repeat match or the requisite DNA is not in the system of submitted samples. Most likely, we will never know the exact fate of Sneha and Philip, but that doesn't mean we can't remember her for the doctor that she was, an empathetic dreamer with the hopes to cure sickness, maintain health, and give back a higher quality of life for all the people she saw. She died doing what she set out to do, offering the ultimate sacrifice. It's unknown how many folks Dr. Philip cared for that morning under the smoking towers, but regardless of the number, her legacy will live on. In honor of the 3,000 lives lost and the countless lives impacted by the violent consequences that have since taken hold since September 11th, 2001, we will show our remembrance and restore honor to the name of Sneha and Philip. This is Cold Case Detective. 